You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal, nuclear energy, natural gas, hydro, solar power, wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For January 20th, 2021, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Electric vehicles are coming on strong now, even under the pressure of the COVID-19 pandemic. Sales of conventional light-duty internal combustion engine, or ICE, vehicles were down by anywhere from 13% in China to 29% in Europe year-over-year during the first three quarters of 2020, while EV sales were up about 11% globally. That gives EVs almost a 5% market share globally, a huge gain from the roughly 1% share they had about five years ago. Accordingly, a lot of pundits, investors, and market watchers are suddenly taking an interest in the sector. Over the past couple of months, I've experienced a surge of incoming inquiries from journalists and venture capitalists alike, all looking for an EV thesis they can run with. I've also heard and read a great deal of confused commentary this year about how EV charging will affect utility grids, what the role of utilities in the sector should be, how charging should be managed and integrated into the grid, and what we should expect as the transportation electrification revolution gathers steam. Or perhaps I should say momentum, since we left steam engines behind nearly a century ago and were about to leave combustion behind entirely. So I thought it was about time that I stepped up and offered my own expertise to this show. For the past five years, I've specialized in researching and writing about vehicle grid integration in my full-time job at the Rocky Mountain Institute, or RMI. And other than the occasional interjection into our 138 episodes so far, I really haven't talked much about that work. But now it seems like it's time to share some insights we've gathered about vehicle grid integration, if only to help correct some of the confusion and help newcomers to the sector understand it a little better. It's quite technically complex when you really get into it, but I'm convinced that there is no way around that. We're all just going to have to learn a lot of new things if we're ever going to understand it. But I can't interview myself, so I invited my friend and longtime utility journalist Robert Walton of Utility Dive to join me as our very first guest host for this interview. Robert has spent 15 years as a reporter covering policy, regulation, and business with a focus on the natural gas and electric utility sectors. Over the past several years, he's written a number of articles about the various aspects of vehicle grid integration that I thought were very well done, and I knew he would be more than capable of conducting this interview. So I'm grateful to him for agreeing to host this conversation. I encourage listeners to check out some of his articles by logging into our website and visiting the links in the show notes of this episode. And because we're going to be largely discussing my work at RMI in this episode, we decided to make it one of our occasional Lanyap shows. As longtime listeners know, we promise are paying subscribers two shows a month or 24 shows a year. But we actually produce a show every two weeks, which makes 26 shows a year. We call the two extra shows a year our Lanyap. That's what they call a little something extra in New Orleans. 
and we run them in front of the paywall so that subscribers and non-subscribers alike can enjoy our full shows a couple of times a year. And actually, looking back, I see that we only did one Lanyap show in 2020, which was our joint show with the Interchange podcast in episode 118. So who knows? Maybe we'll do three of them this year. Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll review a bunch of recent partnerships and announcements having to do with vehicle grid integration, we'll look at a new class of electric vehicles coming to market, and we'll update the sales numbers for EVs and ICE vehicles. And now Robert Walton joins us to host our first ever conversation with me as the guest, recorded December 22nd, 2020. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Robert, to the Energy Transition Show. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Today, we're going to do a little switcheroo and put you in the interviewer's seat while I become the interviewee. And I wanted to do this because I've seen and heard so much confused and incorrect information in other publications and blogs about what is involved in charging electric vehicles and integrating their loads onto the power grid that I thought it was about time that I shared some of our research that my colleagues and I have been doing over the past four years on EV integration at the Rocky Mountain Institute and just try to straighten a few things out. And you were my first choice, actually, as an interviewer, because I've been following your work for years, and I think you've done a very nice job of handling some of the technical complexities of this topic in numerous articles that you've written for Utility Dive. So first, thanks very much for agreeing to this first ever episode in which we have a guest host. <laughs> thanks, Chris. Yeah, I think this is an excellent idea, because as you said, there's been a lot of confusion out there about electric vehicles, how they work, and what they're capable of. I think dispelling some of those myths and informing consumers will be a key to accelerating their adoption. Great. All right. Well, with that, I'm going to hand over the mic, so to speak. So take it away, Robert. All right. Well, the topic gets pretty technical pretty quick, so maybe we can start with some basics. The units. What are the units we need to know to understand EV charging? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> I've been banging on about this for years now, trying to get people, especially journalists who cover the sector, to teach the units instead of resorting to these sort of goofy and inaccurate ways of explaining it, like miles of range per minute of charging or whatever. And later on, I'll explain why that's so wrong with electric vehicle charging. So the two most important units here are the kilowatt and the kilowatt hour. A kilowatt is a unit of power. It's a rate like gallons per minute or miles per hour. Anybody who's actually looked at the power rating on their microwave or their hairdryer probably has seen the word kilowatt before. So it's basically how much power you can get out of the device. A kilowatt hour is a unit of energy. It's a quantity. It's like a gallon or like a mile. A bigger battery pack with a higher number of kilowatt hours in an electric vehicle will hold more electricity, just as a bigger bucket will hold more gallons of water. So if we put those two things together, if you run a one kilowatt generator or an EV charging station for one hour, it'll deliver one kilowatt hour of electricity. One kilowatt multiplied by one hour equals one kilowatt hour. It's it's really that simple. And so I, I don't understand why so many people seem averse to learning or teaching these new units. It's really, <laughs> it's really that simple. That does sound straightforward, but how does that help us understand the energy that an EV battery can hold and how long will it take to charge one? 
Okay, so there's two important things to understand here. The first is that EVs come with a wide range of battery sizes, and those sizes keep going up. For example, the 2018 Chevy Volt, a plug-in hybrid vehicle, or what we call a PHEV, had a modestly sized 18.4 kilowatt hour battery pack. The 2020 Chevy Bolt, a battery electric vehicle, or BEV, has a 66 kilowatt hour battery pack. So that's more than three times as large as the Volt's. And the 2020 Tesla Model X has a 100 kilowatt hour battery pack. So between these vehicles, which are within two model years of each other, there's a five-fold difference between their battery capacities. So how long it'll take to charge the battery depends on the speed of the charger, among other things. So let's talk about that. Charging can happen at a wide range of speeds. If you take your EV and just plug it straight into a regular wall socket, it'll charge slowly at a rate of about one kilowatt. So if you had a 2019 Nissan Leaf, for example, with a 40 kilowatt hour battery and it was completely empty when you started and you charged it all the way up at full speed this way, it would take about 40 hours because at the rate of one kilowatt, you're getting one kilowatt hour of energy per hour of charging. And it's not actually that linear and we'll discuss those complexities in a bit, but just to cover this point. So now instead, suppose you used a typical seven kilowatt home charging station, starting again with a flat battery, charging at that full speed of seven kilowatts, it might take about six hours to fill up. 40 kilowatt hours divided by seven kilowatts equals 5.7 hours. But you can charge even faster. If you went to a public high-speed charging station that delivered 50 kilowatts of power, for example, it would take less than an hour. 40 kilowatt hours divided by 50 kilowatts equals 0.8 hours or 48 minutes. So you see, understanding charging is really not that complicated if you're willing to learn these two simple units and do some basic arithmetic. Okay. Simple enough then. Let's talk about charging speeds. How many different speeds of charging are there? How long will it take a driver to refuel? Okay, so there's three main levels of charging. Just plugging it straight into a regular wall socket, as I said, for a one kilowatt rate of charge is commonly known as level one. If you buy a charger that delivers AC power to the vehicle, which is called a level two charger, those things can deliver up to 19.2 kilowatts, but typically level two chargers deliver 7.2 kilowatts of power. And there's actually no magic to understanding this, by the way. It's just what you would get from a standard household circuit with a 30 amp fuse, and you took two 120 volt conductors into that fuse for a total of 240 volts. Volts times amps equals watts. So 30 amps times 240 volts gets you 7,200 watts, which is 7.2 kilowatts. Make it a 40 amp circuit, and now you can power a 9.6 kilowatt charger on it. 40 amps times 240 volts equals 9,600, and so on. So then the next class of charging that we get into is fast chargers, which actually deliver DC power to the vehicle instead of AC. And here we can actually deliver a lot more power. In actuality, the EV's motor and battery and its battery management system all run on DC. And this is something that we should actually all understand conventionally because most of our devices from our mobile phone chargers to the stuff that's plugged into your stereo, whatever, most of these things have that little power cube that you plug into the wall and then the little cord that goes to the device. That power cube is a converter. It's taking that AC power from the wall and converting it to DC because all of our electric appliances, well, not all, but most of them, the little ones, actually use DC internally, the ones that run on batteries. So the same is true for an EV. 
the EV motor and its battery and its battery management system all run on DC. So when you're feeding it AC power from a wall socket or a level two charger, there's actually an AC to DC converter inside the vehicle that's converting the power to DC. If you have a DC fast charger, what we call DC-FC, you're delivering DC straight to the battery management system, and then you can take higher power levels. It can bypass that converter. So a public DCFC typically starts at around 50 kilowatts, and it can go all the way up to 350. Most public DCFC being installed today are 150 kilowatt units. There's only a few high-end electric vehicles that can actually charge at that rate today, but the charging network operators expect the power demand of vehicles to keep rising, and so they're future-proofing their sites by installing high power chargers from the beginning. And in fact, when we get into medium and heavy duty vehicles, we can even get considerably higher than 350 kilowatts. So charging on a DCFC is also sometimes called level three. So those are the three main charging classes. So how does understanding all of that help understand how long you have to charge in order to get a certain range from your vehicle? So I actually wrote a blog post about this, which subscribers can find linked into the show notes of this episode a year ago to help people understand the simple math of charging. So like a conventional internal combustion engine or ICE vehicle, EVs have different degrees of energy efficiency. Just as you can have one car that gets 10 miles to the gallon and another that gets 40, the same is true for EVs. Only with EVs, instead of thinking miles per gallon, we think miles per kilowatt hour. And actually in Europe, they invert that. They go hours per kilowatt, but I think it's easier to think about it in terms of miles per kilowatt hour. So, for example, suppose you had an older Tesla Model X. It might go around 2.5 miles on a kilowatt hour. So that's its energy efficiency. Suppose you had one with a 100 kilowatt hour battery pack. How far could it go on a charge, in theory, if you could use the entire battery? Again, you probably wouldn't and couldn't, thanks to certain details we won't get into just yet, but just bear with me. So... 100 kilowatt hours multiplied by 2.5 miles per kilowatt hour equals 250 miles. So that's the theoretical range of this Tesla Model X with a 100 kilowatt hour battery pack. Now let's take the Nissan Leaf with the 40 kilowatt hour battery pack again. If you drive it like a granny under favorable conditions, so you're really just squeezing the most range you can get out of that vehicle, it might go five miles on a kilowatt hour. So that's twice the energy efficiency of the Tesla Model X, in part because it weighs about a thousand pounds less. (laughs) So what's its range in theory? Well, 40 kilowatt hours multiplied by five miles per kilowatt hour equals 200 miles. So the Nissan Leaf with the 40 kilowatt hour battery pack can go 200 miles, which is almost as far on a charge as the 250 miles you'd get with a Tesla Model X, whose battery pack is almost twice as large. So this is why it's dumb and wrong to say that X minutes of charging gives you Y miles of range when talking about EV chargers. Whatever your X and your Y are, they're only going to be true for a given vehicle. You charge a different vehicle with a different size battery and a different energy efficiency on the same charger, and you'll have different values for both the minutes of charging and the miles of range you get. Okay. So then 
What about the details you mentioned earlier about the actual rate of charging that happens on a given vehicle? Ah, right. Thanks for reminding me. So there are a couple of important nuances here. The first is that the rate at which the battery is charged is controlled by the vehicle's own battery management system because it knows best what the battery can and can't handle. It's not controlled by the charger. The charger is basically a glorified on-off switch. So if your vehicle has a maximum charging rate of, say, 50 kilowatts, and you hook it up to a 150 kilowatt charger, it's still only going to charge at the rate of 50 kilowatts because that's what the vehicle can do. The second is that charging isn't really linear. It won't start charging at the maximum rate and then just go until the battery is full and then stop. When a battery is mostly empty, the battery management system on the vehicle will allow it to charge near the maximum rate. But as the battery starts to fill up, the battery management system will gradually slow down the rate of charging until it's more like a trickle than a gusher as the battery gets close to full. And that's to protect the battery. So what that means for EV owners is that topping up a vehicle with a partly full battery will probably take longer than the simple arithmetic would suggest. And in some cases, it might mean that when they have the option to pay a higher price for a faster charge, they might want to look closely at the numbers and consider if they'd actually get value for the extra money. You know, maybe the vehicle couldn't take a faster charge, or maybe its battery is close to full, and so paying extra for more speed doesn't really get you anything. The other detail I skipped earlier is that you never really draw an EV's battery all the way down to zero charge. The battery management system will prevent that. So for example, in 2018, Elon Musk tweeted that a Tesla has a usable reserve capacity of five to 15 miles of range, even after the battery reads empty. So that implies that even when the Tesla says its battery has zero charge left, there could be two or three kilowatts of energy still left in the battery. I don't know if that's true of the very latest models of Tesla, you know, everything changes all the time. But just as an example, it demonstrates that all EVs are going to not let you draw the battery all the way down to zero. Hmm. So when we hear about people being reluctant to buy their first EV because of this idea of range anxiety, how far you can go, is that really something to be anxious about? Some of the sources I've spoken with say that we're moving towards a point where electric vehicles will actually be able to go further than their gas-powered counterparts. Is that true? I mean, I think that is true. We're starting to see some announcements from certain manufacturers claiming a range of 400 miles on a charge, which is more than you can get out of a typical ICE vehicle. But it really depends on a lot of factors because for most urban dwellers who need to get around locally for the usual reasons, it isn't really an issue anymore. Range anxiety has to do with two factors, the range of the vehicle and the availability of charging stations. So with the vehicles, we're not really talking about old school EVs with 35 miles of range on a charger or whatever anymore. Lots of new EV models like the Teslas or the Nissan Leaf can get more than 200 miles of range on a charge. But most people drive 45 miles a day or less. So a typical driver could drive normally for four days probably between charges. Now, obviously the exception to that is long distance and there's other considerations that we can talk about with respect to making long distance trips. But one of the things that I always find sort of confusing and fascinating is that when, when people go to think about buying their very first EV, the first thing they think about is that extreme case. But, but what about that one road trip I take for a thousand miles every year? And I go, yeah, what about the 99% of trips that are not that, that are 45 miles a day or less that you're actually going to use this vehicle for? It's funny how people just immediately go to that extreme scenario. And I would just say that if that really is an issue, 
I think it makes a lot of sense to just rent a car or whatever you need to actually do that long distance trip and just take that off the table when you think about what kind of vehicle is appropriate for your needs. Anyway, so that's the vehicle range side of things. As for the chargers, there's really quite a few of them out there and more are getting installed every day. There are now a number of apps that can help you find them. They'll help you plan your trip so you'll be able to get to a charger when you need to and so on. For example, I can go to plugshare.com right now and see that here in Boulder, Colorado, where I live, which is, you know, a medium-sized town of about 100,000 people, there are over 70 public chargers. Most are level two, but there are four centrally located DCFC as well at places like Trader Joe's and Whole Foods and a big mall. So wherever you are in Boulder, you're generally within a few blocks or a half mile at most from a public charger. And of course, if you have a house with a garage where you can park overnight and just use your own charger, you're probably never going to need to hit a public station except when you're on a road trip. And maybe your workplace also offers charging so you can plug in all day long. So it's really not that big a deal if you live in an urban environment. Rural locations, it's a different matter. They're still very much in need of a lot more chargers. Good to know. Let's switch tracks a bit from the nuts and bolts and an abundance of math and ask a question (laughs) that, that I think a lot of people wonder about. Are EVs actually better for the environment than an internal combustion engine vehicle? How do you make that determination? Right. So the answer is pretty much always yes, at least in the U.S. (laughs) EVs are better, except the only place where the grid emissions would be so bad that it would not be better to drive an EV is on extremely coal-heavy grids like you would find in maybe like South Africa or Estonia. Except for those situations, driving an EV is always going to result in less greenhouse gas emissions than driving a conventional ICE vehicle. And this has been a bit of a moving target over the years, obviously, because it depends on how clean your grid power is and how that compares to the emissions of a gasoline or a diesel vehicle. But most grids are cleaning up and they get a little bit cleaner every year, as listeners to this show are well aware. We're shutting down coal plants left and right and replacing them with cleaner generation. There are other questions swirling around about the life cycle emissions and the embedded energy of EVs and what it takes to produce batteries with these so-called rare earth elements and so on. And those are real issues, but I have never seen a single study that shows that when all of those factors are taken into account, that conventional ICE vehicles are better than EVs. Not one. These studies, you know, the ones that attack EVs, typically just examine the environmental footprint of EVs And they don't examine the total environmental footprint of internal combustion engine vehicles, (laughs) which includes all the impacts of drilling for and producing oil and refining it and so on. Those factors never seem to show up in these so-called studies attacking the footprint of EVs. So the good news is that as EV technology, especially battery technology, improves, the total environmental impact of EVs is also being reduced. So, for example, one of the biggest issues that people have talked about with EVs is the use of cobalt in their batteries because most of the world's cobalt is produced in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, sometimes with child labor. But at Tesla's Battery Day a few months ago, they demonstrated a new type of battery that they've been developing, which eliminates cobalt entirely. So, The short answer is yes, EVs are better for the environment and they're going to keep getting better as the technology improves and grids become cleaner. And as time goes on, we're going to address issues related to their footprint and we're going to get problematic materials like cobalt out of the chain, hopefully. Whereas conventional internal combustion engine vehicles are just never going to get substantially better than they are now. 
We're never going to substantially reduce the emissions footprint or the environmental damage caused by oil and gas production or refining it or the spills and so on and so forth. So yeah, if environmental concerns are your big issue, I think you can feel confident about buying an EV. Hmm. What about the economics of driving an EV versus a gas-powered car? Battery prices are coming down, but most people I speak with say it's still cheaper to buy that gas-powered car. As a general rule, an EV is cheaper to own than an ICE, even if it's cheaper to buy the ICE than the EV. So there's a couple of factors that make this so. First, electricity is cheaper than gasoline. This can get very complicated, as we'll explain in a minute, but for the moment, I'll just leave that point there. Second, EVs are much more energy efficient than ICE vehicles, which is a point that we explored in depth with Mark Lewis in episode 110. There's just a lot less energy wasted in an EV. Third, EVs have only a small fraction of the moving parts that an ICE vehicle does. They're really quite simple machines, despite the sophistication of the technology that goes into them. So there are just a lot fewer parts to wear out and need replacement. They don't need oil changes. They use regenerative braking, so they need fewer brake pad replacements, and so on. So the repair and maintenance costs are generally a lot lower for EVs. However, EVs are still more expensive to buy than an equivalent ICE model. So if you go down to a dealership right now and you compare, I don't know, let's say a Nissan Leaf to a Toyota Camry or something like that, the Nissan Leaf is probably going to be quite a bit more expensive. So if you only look at the sticker price, you'd conclude that an EV is more expensive to own. But savvy owners who really need to understand the full cost of their vehicles, like fleet managers, for example, they don't just look at the sticker price. They look at the total cost of ownership, what we call TCO. And so after including the factors I just mentioned, an EV almost always has a lower TCO than an ICE equivalent, even if the sticker price of the EV is like twice as much as the ICE. Unfortunately, few consumers seem to think about things like TCO or even try to open up a spreadsheet and do a few calculations, and few salespeople at auto dealerships are even educated enough to help their buyers understand this. So you said a minute ago, though, that the cost of electricity gets a bit complicated. How does that affect that total cost of ownership calculation, and, and how does a customer figure that out for themselves? Right. So suppose you live in a single-family home, and you can park your car at home and charge it up overnight. Or suppose you have access to a level two charger at work where you can plug it in all day. So the average cost of grid power across the U.S. is about 11 cents a kilowatt hour. So let's take the example we mentioned earlier of the Nissan LEAF, only this time let's use a little more conservative assumption and say that it has an energy efficiency of 4 miles per kilowatt hour. So for 11 cents in electricity for 1 kilowatt hour, you can go 4 miles. So your cost is about 3 cents a mile. Now let's consider an equivalent vehicle let's say a typical sedan with a fuel economy of about 30 miles per gallon. Using today's average U.S. gasoline price of $2.14 a gallon, that works out to $0.07 cents a mile. So that's more than double the cost of driving the same distance on electricity. And that's with gas prices that are very low today relative to where they were for the past 15 years or so, you know, on account of COVID. So now suppose you live in an apartment building and you don't have a dedicated parking space or the space you have doesn't have a charging station or even a regular outlet. And suppose you don't have access to a charger at work either. You might be able to hit a free or an inexpensive level two charger when you're out doing errands at one of the aforementioned public level two stations. 
and maybe it'll cost you a little more than it would to charge at home. But if you really need to rely more heavily on public DCFC, you might be paying closer to 35 cents a kilowatt hour, not 11. So now your fuel cost is closer to 9 cents a mile, which is more expensive than gasoline. So just going from that level 2 charging to DCFC could make it more expensive to drive the EV. But then suppose gasoline prices go back to where they were two years ago, which was about $3 a gallon and not $2.14. So at $3 a gallon, once again, the cost of refueling the ice is higher than that of the EV at $0.10 a mile. But in some cases, your cost of electricity could be higher than the national average. For example, in California, the cost of electricity is more like $0.19 a kilowatt hour. In Hawaii, it's $0.28. So, of course, gasoline is more expensive in both of those places than the national average as well. But obviously, the cost comparison between the cost of running on electricity versus gasoline all depends on where you charge, how you charge, and what the equivalent cost of petroleum fuels are in your area. Why is it so much more expensive to charge at a DCFC station than at a level two charger? Uh, now, this is, <laughs> this is where it gets really complicated. So that cost depends on what the charging station operator has to pay for grid power, because obviously they have to pay that and then they have to make a little profit. And the cost that they have to pay for grid power depends on what the utility rate, otherwise known as a tariff, is that the charging station is on. In our Energy Basics shows on electricity, episodes 126 and 128, we explained how there are thousands of different utilities across the U.S., and each of them has many, maybe dozens of different tariffs. So if you're an operator, for example, of a nationwide network of DCFC chargers like Electrify America or EVgo, your costs are all over the place. But they don't want to expose their customers to these wildly fluctuating prices because that's a bad customer experience. So they just have to figure out an average cost to charge their customers that will sort of smooth out their costs across all these charging stations and all these different utility tariffs. And that's the simple part of this question. <laughs> In reality, their costs are so much more complex. And we've done a lot of research on this, but very briefly, a typical commercial utility tariff, like the tariff that a 150 kilowatt DCFC might be on, doesn't just charge you for energy. It often has a separate charge called a demand charge, which is calculated every month based on the highest power demand recorded on the meter over the month. It's like a high watermark. So, for example, the utility might figure out that the 15-minute interval in the month where the customer was drawing the most power, and then they would charge the customer a separate fee, usually something in the range of 5 to $15 per kilowatt, for that demand on their system. And the theory behind this demand charge is that those who demand a lot of power should have to pay for the cost that the utility has to incur to build a grid that's beefy enough to reliably supply that amount of power. And so demand charges really evolved as a way to charge very heavy power consumers like manufacturing facilities for their demands on the grid. Demand charges, however, are typically not a feature of residential or small commercial tariffs. Yeah, those demand charges are something I've written a bit about. They can make it difficult or impossible for charging stations to be profitable because the stations aren't used often, is what I've heard. 
Is that right? And is this a problem that essentially goes away as more people drive an EV and use the stations? Exactly, exactly. So suppose you're the operator of a 150 kilowatt charging station. And suppose that it just opened. So it's only getting used like once a day. You know, a lot of customers haven't found it yet. And the drivers aren't even getting a full charge from it, but rather they're just topping up their battery. Let's suppose they roll up to it with a half full battery and they want to go to completely full. So suppose that one session a day is delivering, say, 20 kilowatt hours of energy and the charging station operator is getting 30 cents a kilowatt hour for that energy delivered to the driver. So the charging station is earning $6 a day in revenue, 30 cents times 20 kilowatt hours. So $6 a day in revenue, that's $180 a month in revenue. Not a lot of money. Now suppose that charging station is on a tariff that includes a $10 per kilowatt demand charge. So even though the charger is only getting used once a day, and even though it's only dispensing a relatively small amount of electricity, at some point in the month, for 15 minutes, it was pulling 150 kilowatts from the grid. 150 kilowatts times $10 per kilowatt is $1,500. <laughs> so you can see the problem. <laughs> if you're earning $180 a month, but you're getting whacked with $1,500 a month in demand charges, you've got a problem. And that's before you've even paid for everything else, the electricity itself. I mean, this is just the demand charge part, let alone paying for the charging station, which might cost $100,000 to buy, or the full cost of the installation, which after you add in everything involved in actually installing that thing could be closer to $250,000, or the annual maintenance of the charging station or the communications contracts so it can talk to the network or anything else. So this issue has been a big part of my work at RMI over the past five years, well, before the pandemic anyway. My colleague Garrett Fitzgerald and I wrote several reports about it and even came up with our own rate design to solve this problem. In 2018, I was on a plane every other week running all over the country talking to utilities and their regulators and to conference audiences about rate design, encouraging them to solve this problem so there's actually a decent business case for DCFC network operators. But without plenty of public DCFC out there, people just aren't going to be comfortable with buying their first EV, especially the roughly one-third of Americans who live in apartment buildings, or for that matter, people who drive for ride-sharing services like Uber and Lyft. They absolutely must have access to public DCFC before owning an EV is going to make sense for them. But the business case for the DCFC networks who have to buy electricity under a typical demand tariff is obviously really challenging. So when we get to the point where there are a lot more EVs on the road, not sort of 1% like we have today, but let's say 30 or 40%, then those charging stations will get used a lot more. And when they get to around a 30% utilization rate, which is a lot if you think about it, because that means the charging station is really in use like eight hours a day, then we think they'll probably be generating enough revenue that they'll be able to afford a conventional tariff with these demand charges. But we have to have the charging stations out there in order for the market to grow up and get to that point. So I realize this is all super wonky and something that most people who aren't working in the EV charging business would even care about, but it's critically important. We absolutely must fix this rate design problem if we're going to have a healthy network of public charging stations out there. And to be clear, this isn't a problem everywhere. There are some utilities, particularly in the Southeast, that don't have these demand charges and offer a much more affordable cost of electricity to charging stations. But generally speaking, it's an issue that I think most utilities and regulators need to start grappling with 
with if we're going to achieve our objectives for decarbonizing transportation through electrification. Wow. All right. So renewed respect for the operators of those <laughs> fast charging stations. No doubt. And for their very patient capital backers, no doubt. <laughs> But I'm curious about the utility tariffs for level two charging too. You said earlier that residential rates don't usually include a demand charge. Are there utility rate issues for these chargers? So with charging at home or at work on these level one or level two speeds, it's really a whole different question, which is less about cost and more about value. So level one and level two charging is, as we explained, much cheaper than level three. And that makes sense because it costs the utility a lot less to supply that power. So where it's available, it's preferable. And it's an interesting thing about level two charging in particular, that you're typically plugged into it for hours, not minutes at a time. So vehicles using level two have more of what we call dwell time on the charger. And the charger might have some sophisticated features built into it, like Wi-Fi communications, metering capabilities, and various kinds of active control capabilities. So what's cool about that is that if your utility offers you what we call a time of use or TOU rate that charges you different prices for power at different times of the day, depending on grid conditions, then you can take advantage of that as an EV owner and shift the charging of your vehicle to the off-peak hours when it's cheapest. And that can be a real advantage on some TOU tariffs where, say, you might pay $0.10 cents a kilowatt hour off-peak, but $0.30 cents on-peak. So if you can avoid charging on peak and do most of your charging off peak, it can really save you some money. And this starts to get into how utilities can manage the demand from EV charging, right? Incentivizing customers to to charge when there's less demand or when there's more renewable energy on the system? If the utility has a TOU tariff, yes. Managed charging could save you money because it saves the utility money. In a typical situation, for example, a utility might have its power plants running all night, even when the demand is well below what they're able to supply, so they can sell that power cheaply. But in the middle of a hot summer day, when everybody's air conditioners are cranking and the grid is straining to meet that demand, for example, and the utility is firing up every generator it has at its disposal and the transmission grid is delivering at full capacity, then it can be very expensive to supply power. On the Texas grid, for example, which is an energy-only grid, listeners can check out numerous of our earlier episodes for a discussion about that, like episode 64, about the implications of an energy-only grid versus other types. On the Texas grid, low-cost nighttime power supplied by wind might cost the utility something like $25 a megawatt hour. But in the middle of a hot summer day when everything is strained to the max and running at capacity, prices can go as high as $9,000 per megawatt hour. So a <laughs> bit of a difference there. So if a utility offers a TOU rate and people with EVs can take advantage of those low-cost off-peak hours, it saves the customer money because it saves the utility money. And if we can do that with millions of EVs, it can actually lower grid power prices for everybody, even people who don't drive, because the utility can essentially deliver more product, electricity, from the same grid assets without having to invest more in more generation and distribution. So good integration of EV loads on utility grids with the help of smart tariffs and smart charging, also called managed charging, can actually save everybody money, even if they don't drive a car. But I just point out that 
arguments are often made by minions of the oil and gas industry, in particular, claiming that any sort of utility advantage offered to EVs basically amounts to some sort of a cost shift from wealthy Tesla drivers to pensioners who can barely afford their utility bills. That's just straight false. That's not how this works. The more EVs we have on the system doing managed charging, steering their load into the valleys of the load profile and keeping it away from the peaks on the utilities system, it will actually reduce prices for those pensioners, not increase them. <laughs> okay. So are those time of use rates then the main thing we need to think about for integrating vehicles into the grid? Yes, but it can be far more sophisticated. As those who listen to our Energy Basics shows on electricity you know, the utilities that serve retail customers that might offer a TOU rate to them sometimes don't generate their power. They buy it from a wholesale market like an ISO or an RTO. And on those markets, there are various services that can be sold by those who do managed charging. For example, a utility might offer a discount to their customers in exchange for being able to interrupt a charger for a while or to turn its power down when grid conditions are constrained. Or a managed charging aggregator who can control thousands of EV chargers, which this aggregator could also be a utility, can offer EV owners something in exchange for being able to control them. Whoever can control a lot of chargers like this can offer that control as a service into the ISO and RTO markets and get paid for that. They can reduce power consumption when the ISO issues what's called a demand response signal, which essentially indicates that the grid is getting constrained and they're willing to pay those who can reduce their power consumption. They can also sell what's called ancillary services, such as frequency and voltage regulation, to those markets. Again, by simply turning down or turning off chargers for a little while at specific places on the grid at the right time as a way of keeping grid power within certain technical specifications. It all gets a bit technical, but the point is that those who can provide managed charging at scale can get paid for doing so. And all of that is part of the opportunity and the potential value in doing managed charging. And it can even get more sophisticated. For example, suppose a DCFC operator added a battery array to their charging station as a way of mitigating their demand charges so that instead of hitting the high power demands that incur demand charges, they could pull power from their own battery system during the high demand intervals. Well, the rest of the time, they have this expensive battery sitting there doing nothing. So they could use that battery to essentially do grid power price arbitrage, to buy power when it's cheap and sell it back to the grid when it's expensive. So there's actually a whole value stack that can come into play with vehicle grid integration for utilities and for other market participants who are sophisticated enough to engage in it. What about vehicles selling power from their batteries back to the grid, sometimes called V to G? Is that a part of that value stack? I know there's some utilities that are experimenting with this, but is it widespread or even really useful yet? It could be, but as yet, it doesn't really exist in the U.S. beyond a few small pilot programs. It's more of a thing in Europe right now, and there are a lot of reasons for that. For one, you have to have utilities that actually offer a tariff that will pay a vehicle owner or a managed charging aggregator to sell power back to the grid. And those tariffs are not common in the U.S. For another, most vehicle manufacturers don't allow it. They will invalidate your vehicle warranty if you use the vehicle in this kind of V to G way. And then there are a variety of technical issues, like the fact that a lot of chargers aren't actually capable of bidirectional charging, let alone the complexity of registering and fulfilling these little transactions. 
Now, eventually we may see blockchain solutions and the like making V2G more of a reality in the U.S., but for now, it's really all about G2V, power flowing from the grid to the vehicle only. And actually, before V2G really becomes a commercial reality, I expect various kinds of V2B solutions, where B stands for building, where vehicles can supply power to the buildings and act as backup power for those buildings. But that also entails a lot of technical issues that I think few people who dream about such things have really contemplated. And even then, we don't really know how much wear and tear using a vehicle battery like that will cause or how that degradation compares to what a utility might pay for the energy supplied from it or how a building owner might value the use of an asset like an EV or how the vehicle owner might feel about how they're being compensated for that. So it can get pretty complicated to make it all work. You know, I've read hundreds of technical papers on these topics, so I'm not just <laughs> spitballing here. And I just don't think the value proposition of V to G is all that clear, mainly because it doesn't exist commercially, at least in the U.S., so we don't really know what the prices are for all these things. Hmm. So if V to G isn't really here yet, what do you think is the proper role for utilities in good vehicle grid integration? So there's a, really a lot that utilities can do. And I think the first thing, as we've been discussing, is to offer tariffs that encourage good integration. So for DCFC, tariffs that depress the role of demand charges and create a more favorable business opportunity for the private sector charging station operators. And TOU tariffs for level two charging that encourage off-peak charging and create a market opportunity for managed charging aggregators to sell services like demand response and ancillary services to the grid operators. Another thing they can do is offer to share in the cost of deploying charging stations by paying for what is often called the make-ready portion of the infrastructure, which could mean all the grid components right up to the customer meter, or it can even mean portions of the infrastructure right up to the stub-out of the charger itself, such as conduit, switch gear, service panels, and the like. It's really the utility that should be investing in that stuff anyway, particularly the stuff on their side of the meter. But regulators have been slow to allow utilities to make those investments and recover the costs through the general rate base which is the prices for power that all utility customers pay. And utilities themselves have been slow to even recognize the opportunity that transportation electrification presents. It never ceases to amaze me. I mean, here they are after more than a decade of flat or even declining load across most of the country with little justification to keep making investments in new generators and transmission and distribution assets, which is how they get paid. And they've got this huge load about to come onto their systems. And in much of the country, they still haven't done much at all to capitalize on that opportunity. It's hard to fathom because transportation electrification is really the only major near-term load growth opportunity they have and the only major justification they have to invest in new assets, which is how they make their money. So we published our first major report on vehicle grid integration five years ago. And for a lot of utilities and regulators I've spoken to, what we wrote in that report is still news, let alone all the other reports we've done since then, which get much deeper into the weeds on the technical matters of this stuff. So, of course, utilities can also be more proactive in reaching out to their customers, especially workplaces and fleets who might need to install significant numbers of chargers and have serious power demands and helping them to electrify. Okay, so let's talk about this new load that's coming then. How big is it? 
And can the grid really handle full electrification of all vehicles? So the generally accepted rule of thumb is that if we electrified all roughly 251 million light duty, that's class one and two passenger vehicles in the U.S. overnight, it would probably mean increasing the annual electricity demand of the U.S. by about 25%. Of course, it's going to happen over decades, not overnight, so we actually have plenty of time to accommodate this load, but at least that gives you a sense of the magnitude that we're talking about. Now, can the grid handle it? It can if we build it to handle it. I mean, that's what utilities do and have always done. Demand for power grows through a growing population and an expanding economy and so on. And utilities go build more power generating stations and beef up their transmission systems and distribution grids in order to meet that new demand. There's nothing particularly challenging or different about EVs as far as that goes. Except that EV demand is probably coming at them faster than they're aware, so there's a chance that it will catch some of them flat-footed if they don't pay attention and start developing some plans. But in fairness, there's also some regulators out there who have yet to come to grips with the implications of electrifying vehicles, and they're not encouraging utilities to get busy planning to accommodate these new loads either, especially where medium and heavy-duty vehicles are concerned. Some of those vehicles are going to make serious new demands on the power grids. So let's go back to that question of infrastructure costs then, because we're going to ask utilities to make some of these investments and pass those costs along to all customers. It seems like we should understand how much money we're really talking about. Indeed. So a year ago, we published a report on how to reduce EV charging infrastructure costs. Going into the project, our theory was that we could reduce costs by doing the usual things that bring costs down for a new technology, like getting away from bespoke designs and moving towards standard configurations, manufacturing things in bulk to capture efficiencies of scale, standardizing requirements and specifications, and adopting open standards instead of protecting proprietary platforms, and all that typical stuff. So we interviewed a couple dozen companies working in the sector, including charging manufacturers, engineering and procurement companies, charging network operators, utilities, and so on to get their opinions. And we published for the first time what this stuff costs down to the component level as much as we were able to determine that information. Before we published our report, it was very difficult for anyone to even find out what any of this stuff should cost. So now at least we could tell the market, for example, that a commercial public level two charger might cost upwards of $2,500 and a 150 kilowatt DCFC might cost $75,000 to $100,000 and transformers cost upwards of $35,000 and so on. So that was good. We at least got the data out there. But then we realized that our theory about how to bring the cost down wasn't exactly wrong, but it wasn't actually the greatest opportunity to reduce costs. That actually lay in what we called soft costs, things like getting building permits, obtaining easements, applying for utility interconnections, complying with regulatory requirements, and so on. These things all added long delays and significant costs to charging sites such that nationwide, an average of 1.8 design revisions had to be made for every design that was approved. And the complexity of these issues meant that for a public DCFC site, network operators had to evaluate two and a half to three potential locations before selecting one that they could pursue to completion, meaning that they had to spend a lot of time and money applying for permits and interconnections and exploring easements and doing legal and engineering work on all these sites before abandoning two of the three potential sites. And 
most surprising of all, I think, was realizing that trenching, just digging up concrete or asphalt in order to land some conduit and conductors to supply power to the chargers, was a huge cost component. It was like 18% of the total project cost. So you definitely don't want to have to do that more than once. So that spoke to the importance of future-proofing installations by installing more power supply than was needed to allow for future expansion of the actual charges at the site. So what can be done to address these soft cost issues? Well, the first thing we did is go looking for some support from the Department of Energy and the National Labs because I remembered from my career in the solar industry 15 years ago <laughs> that we went through all the same stuff with residential solar. Back then, we had a lot of excessive soft costs due to all the same kinds of reasons. Inefficient processes for obtaining permits and utility interconnections and unclear requirements and standards and so on. So the DOE established the Sunshot Initiative back then which, among other things, funded studies of some of these soft cost issues and recommended ways to reduce them. And various states, like California, actually passed legislation to standardize and de-bottleneck these processes. So it's really the same stuff all over again here with EV charging infrastructure. We haven't yet succeeded in inspiring DOE to take action on this, but I'm hopeful that we will, or at least that the states will step up and start finding legislative cures to these problems, because... It's just all so wasteful and unnecessary, and it's basically just bureaucratic red tape, and it slows things down just as we should be trying to speed things up. You mentioned fleet managers a moment ago as a particular type of customer that utilities should start focusing on. Why start there? What do they need to think about and do over the next couple of years to get ready to electrify their fleets? Well, a day after this episode of the podcast launches, my colleagues and I will be launching our latest report, which is all about what fleets need to do. So for this project, we put out a survey to a large number of fleet managers, and we got, I think, nearly 100 responses. And we conducted depth interviews with 18 major fleet managers. Now, this is another big report, so I won't delve into too much detail on it here, but people can go read that report and all of our other reports, for that matter, which are all freely available on RMI's website, and they're all linked into the show notes of this episode. But in short, we conducted the study because we reasoned that while consumer adoption of EVs might be slowed down by the pandemic, fleet managers might still be proceeding with their electrification strategies because they were mandated to do so. But we thought that focusing on fleets might be the best path for now to get more EVs on the road. But first we had to figure out what they were thinking and identify the major obstacles they might be facing. So we did the study. And we discovered a lot of interesting details in that process, but the main conclusion was that most fleets have been in this sort of demonstration or pilot stage of electrification, and now they need to start doing some serious planning to prepare to electrify at scale, where they're buying vehicles and chargers in the hundreds of units per year, not single digits. Because as they go to scale... All of the stuff that we've been talking about here just gets very complicated very quickly. And if they don't do it right with adequate foresight and long-range planning, it will also be unnecessarily slow and expensive. The good news is that if they do it right, it'll save them some serious money and give them vehicles that are really superior in every way to the old ICE equivalents. So the effort will be worth it, but they will have to put in the effort. And for the largest organizations like cities, major corporates, and the like, 
they're actually going to need to restructure some of their internal business processes so that they can accurately monitor and track their costs and figure out how to optimize their investments. This isn't something that can just be shoved onto the fleet managers to figure out. It's actually going to take the full participation of everyone in these organizations from the C-suite on down. One topic we haven't really talked about today is hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. Do you think they're going to be a significant part of the project of decarbonizing transportation? I think that's still unclear. There are just a lot of challenges that face hydrogen as a fuel that electricity does not face, including how industry is going to develop a whole supply chain to produce, distribute, and deliver the hydrogen. Most of the equivalent infrastructure already exists for electricity, and it's already cheap. So hydrogen is at a huge disadvantage right there. Some industry observers think that hydrogen has a real advantage for heavy-duty trucks like long-haul Class 8 semi-tractors because it can have an energy density that's even greater than gasoline without the weight that an equivalent amount of energy storage in the form of batteries would have. And that may be true. The way I see it, it's kind of a race right now between the evolution of battery technology and trucks like Tesla's Class 8 semi-tractor and the ability of the hydrogen industry, which is pretty small really, to mobilize a great deal of capital to build out a whole new refueling infrastructure as well as to develop hydrogen fuel cell trucks. Both are probably at least four to five years in the future. We'll have to wait and see who wins that race. But other than Class 7 or Class 8 vehicles, my opinion is that it's pretty much all going to straight battery electric vehicles. And hydrogen fuel cell passenger vehicles lost the race to EVs years ago. Gotcha. Well, we've covered a lot of ground today. Are there any final thoughts you want to leave your listeners with? Well, I'll leave them with my standard joke. It's often been said that electric vehicles and charging infrastructure suffer from a chicken and egg problem, that no one will build the charging stations until there are a lot more EVs on the road, but no one will buy all those EVs until the charging stations are out there. But I think that's wrong. I say that we don't have a chicken and egg problem. We have a chicken and waffles problem. (laughs) The vehicles are definitely coming, so we should stop waffling and build some charging infrastructure. (laughs) Well, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for inviting me to be your first ever interviewer on the podcast. And thank you for agreeing to do it. As I said, I've admired your work in vehicle grid integration. It was a privilege to have you join us for this. And if I ever need somebody to guest host for me in the future, I think I know who I'll call. (laughs) Terrific. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Well, that wraps this conversation. Once again, I'd like to thank Robert for being our very first guest host. For my part, I think I've said quite enough for one show, so I'll just conclude by saying that I hope you all learned a few things about vehicle grid integration in this episode, and that if you want to go much deeper on these topics, just log into our website and check out the RMI reports we discussed today, which are all linked into the show notes of this episode. There's a lot of material to explore there, and it's all still very relevant and current. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. NextEra Energy Resources, which claims to be the largest generator of renewable energy from the wind and sun and a world leader in battery storage, and which is also one of the largest wholesale power generators in the U.S. with roughly 22 gigawatts of generating capacity, has taken aim at the vehicle grid integration market. On December 8th, it announced that it had acquired EIQ Mobility, the leading software provider of mobility planning solutions. EIQ Mobility, according to the press release, leverages its proprietary database of electric vehicles, rates, chargers, and incentives to help fleets, quote, select the optimal electric vehicles and charging infrastructure that meet their operational requirements while significantly reducing maintenance and fuel costs as well as the total cost of ownership and emissions, end quote. 
NextEra expects to use the platform to help their commercial, industrial, municipal, and utility customers plan their infrastructure for renewable energy, load management, and resiliency, while helping them meet their environmental, social, and governance goals. Item 2. On December 10th, Energy Hub, which provides utilities with a platform for managing distributed energy resources, announced a partnership with NLX, a leading EV charger manufacturer and service provider, to expand the availability of smart EV charging stations as a flexible DER for utilities. NLX is a unit of NL Group, which in 2017 acquired eMotorworks and its JuiceNet EV charging management platform. Through the partnership, utilities can manage customer-owned NLX smart EV charging stations through Energy Hub's Mercury Derms platform. Initial utility customers using the platform include Baltimore Gas and Electric and Eversource. Through the integration of Energy Hub's Mercury Derms platform with NLX's cloud-based JuiceNet smart EV charging software, the press release says, utilities can forecast load, intelligently instruct, and monitor load results from customer-owned NLX charging stations. Item 3. On December 17th, the California Public Utilities Commission announced a decision designed to further the integration of electric vehicles as grid resources. This is the kind of thing I've been trying to encourage utilities and regulators to do for years. Our report, Electric Vehicles as Distributed Energy Resources, was published in 2016. Notably, the decision was in furtherance of the objectives of California's 2019 Senate Bill 676, which directed the commission to, quote, establish strategies and quantifiable metrics to maximize the use of feasible and cost-effective electric vehicle integration into the electrical grid by January 1, 2030. So the state legislature gets credit for driving this initiative. The CPUC's decision directs the state's three largest investor-owned utilities to undertake a broad range of activities, including developing wholesale market participation rules for vehicle grid integration, supporting the deployment of automated load management technology, adopting rates that encourage vehicle grid integration, supporting vehicle grid integration in their demand response platforms, and reporting annually on their progress on a long list of related activities. I hope this sets an example that other state regulatory commissions will follow, as is often the case with the CPUC. Item 4. Among the new types of electric vehicles coming to market are recreational vehicles, often called RVs or motorhomes in the U.S., and caravans in the U.K. The first such vehicle launched in 2019 when two German companies, Elektrofahrzeuge Stuttgart, also known as EFAS, an electric vehicle retrofitter, and WOF, a motorhome manufacturer, came out with the Iridium EV, a roughly 7-meter or 20-foot-long camper van. The flagship model of the Iridium claims 249 miles of range on a charge, has a list price of $219,000, and is only for sale in Europe. Since then, at least two other models have come to market, the Nissan ENV200 with 124 miles of range on a charge, and the Winnebago RV with 85 to 125 miles of range. Several more concept versions of electric RVs have been unveiled, including one from Tesla and another from German RV manufacturer Deathlefs. Most recently, Lordstown Motors, the Ohio-based electric truck manufacturer that just went public via a SPAC, announced a partnership with the U.S. EV retailer Camping World, under which the two companies will explore developing new EV products and solutions for the RV marketplace based on Lordstown's endurance pickup platform, including a lithium-ion battery pack for travel trailers that would replace conventional gasoline onboard generators, and the first all-electric high-volume production RV. 
The partnership also plans to install a Good Sam charging network at Camping World locations and to offer EV service and collision repair services for Lordstown vehicles at Camping World's 170 service and collision centers across the U.S. And finally, item five. More than one million plug-in cars were sold in Europe in 2020, accounting for roughly 10% of all vehicle sales. The plug-ins were roughly evenly split between straight battery electric vehicles and plug-in hybrid electric vehicles. Manufacturers are racing to meet the EU's CO2 emission targets, and plug-in vehicle sales in Europe in 2020 are likely to be about twice as large as their sales were in 2019. Not coincidentally, Colin McCarricker, the head of BNEF's transport analysis, tweeted on December 4th that according to their latest data, it looks like 2017 was probably the all-time peak of sales for combustion vehicles worldwide. For a deeper understanding of why EVs are likely to run away with the market for vehicles and why ICE vehicles are doomed, listen to our conversation with Mark Lewis in episode 110. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, Energy Transition. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at MikeSugarMusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XC Network. <laughs>